0: All right, ladies and gents, welcome to Tuesday. We're on another episode of MSP Initiative Live. Today we bring back a legal extraordinaire guru, I call him, Mr. Brad Gross, from uh, the Bradley Gross uh, Law Offices. And he is a specialist in technology law. Uh, Actually, Brad, for people who um, haven't heard of your story, haven't run into you i know hard to believe um why don't you give them a quick background because i i think people never believe me when i say no guy was in the trench you know he he was in the technology space before he went into the law
1: yeah and, that was uh, a i was a tech geek for a long time i go. was a uh i started out as a hacker at the age of 11 on a trs 80 model one level two with a 300 baud modem um and uh, uh um yeah, at that time, we used to hack into uh, you know, BBSs and whatever else was out there at that time. I remember going back now, what, 40 years ago. And um, yeah, that's how my, my start began. And then I became a, a prosecutor, putting people in jail for doing things that I was doing just a few years earlier. So that's always fun. And from there, sort of worked its way out to the private sector. So I've been now representing tech companies for about 20 some odd years. Um, You know, started out as a hacker programmer, ended up as a computer (laughs) slash part-time wannabe programmer. Um, Other than that, you know, I'm just uh, sitting here trying to find out when I could get my vaccine. (laughs) I should be fine.
0: Right on. Appreciate it. So... A lot, a lot of current events happening, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in MSP land, like not even going back 30 days to that infamous 2020 that everybody think, seems has been wiped out. Um, a lot of the times when we start these conversations, all things come back to what does your agreement say? <laughs> How is it structured? So, do you have one? Do you have one? Yeah, this is right. Important. So before we get off into scenarios and ideas and what's the best way to do things, why don't you explain to the folks watching this what is what how things should work, right? Like uh-huh. your constitution versus what you're actually delivering from a scope of work. And why don't you just give people some basic building blocks so they understand when we start answering questions what that means.
1: Okay. So a lot of people... You know i've heard me talk about master agreements and they think they have one uh you know people who who, who have just sort of found master agreements and implemented them and they think oh I'm, I'm all set most people have no idea what a master agreement is so here we go from the beginning a master agreement is your constitution that does not change that is service agnostic and it applies to everything you do so if you have a contract and a, a, ma- a an agreement that you are using that is not service agnostic, meaning I don't care what service you're using, it applies. And if it does not change, if rather I should say, if it does change, right? If it's not service agnostic and it changes, it's not a master agreement because just like our own constitution, we don't change our master agreement. So if you have services, service levels, rates, um, any sort of variable that is in your master agreement well, your master agreement is going to change because those variables change and that's a problem. So right off the bat, if that's your what your agreement has, you, you don't have a master agreement and you need one. On the flip side of the same coin, all of those variables that I just talked about, your services, your rates, your, your hours, anything that if I said to you, I'm going to quadruple what I'm paying you. I'm going to quadruple what I'm paying you. Can I do better? If the answer is yes, then that shouldn't be in your master agreement, because it's something that will change based on finances, based on money. So those things have to be in a different document. They can't be in your master agreement. So there are a couple of ways to go about it. You could create statements of work, which are descriptive narratives that describe what you're going to provide, when you're going to provide it, how you're going to provide it, and so forth. Those statements of work are governed under your master agreement, but they are not incorporated into it because we don't change our master agreement. They're not attached to the master agreement because if you attach it, you've changed your master agreement. They're governed under it, but they are standalone narratives. Alternatively, uh, for those of you out there who are using uh, quoting software. And, and there are a lot of different ones. I mean, we could rattle them off. You have ConnectCell and and Proposify and Zomentum and all of these, these quoting software, uh, applications. If you're using any of them, well, then what you want to do is put your services and and deliverables in a quote, right? In a quote. And from there, You can attach to the quote, if you need to, a description of those services, because you don't want your quote to go on for 20 or 30 pages. A quote should be like a receipt when you buy something, a receipt. I bought this. This is how many I bought. This is the price. Maybe a couple of terms from there, and then everything after that can be attached in maybe a user manual of sorts, a statement of service that can be attached to your proposal, all of which is governed under that master agreement that never changes. That's the paradigm that you should all be using. If you're not using it, well, then you're doing something wrong. That's oh. my, that's my position.
0: So no, that's, I, I just wanted a good foundation, right? Cause a lot of the times when right. we get connections, there's a lot of questions around how to structure things, how to present things, how to do things. And so this is like our, our starting point. Sure. So a lot of what MSPs do is package some sort of bundle of services from a right. bunch of upstream vendors. And I've had many conversations with you about this. I don't think this has changed, but I'm going to ask you again. Well, how do you protect yourself from a couple of scenarios? One, mm-hmm. let's say, I'm just going to pick one. I'm not trying to pick on them, but it's popular. So we're going to throw this out. Office 365, for example. Okay. They can change your price at any time. Mm-hmm. You're, you're bundling this you know, you know, whatever version skew it is, right? E1, you know, mm-hmm. S5, whatever. You're packaging your, your Office 365 into your deliverables to your customer, okay? Microsoft changes the price. Well, you didn't control that. You now you're in right. a, right? You propose and quoted the customer one thing. You sign a multi-year term, maybe. Microsoft comes to you, gives you, you know, could be zero notice, could be 30 days notice, whatever it ends up being. How do you handle that situation with your downstream end customer when when that comes downstream and you have no control?
1: So it's it's it happens more and more frequently, especially not just in you know in the Microsoft um, uh, arena, but in uh, any sort of stacked arena in security stack, right? When you're offering a a, a malware, a security awareness, security training, I mean, all kinds of different things from different vendors, um, you're really making promises. That rely upon the upstream provider. So that's really what it comes down to. In your example, Microsoft is an upstream provider. And like many upstream providers, they reserve the right to change whatever they want, whenever they want, pretty much at any time. So, how do you handle that as an MSP? Because you're sort of the middleman. You have the upstream provider making all sorts of, you know, not crazy changes, but changes. And then, of course, you're expected to now somehow become the Rosetta Stone and explain to your customers, well, this is what they've done, and this is how it changes, and I know that's not what you expected, but this is how we have to do things. So how do you do that? Um, we'll begin with two rules, right? Two, two, two laws. What is it in physics? They say a law is something that doesn't change, right? That's why it's a law. We're going to be given two laws, not statutory laws, like rules of the industry. First, you can only offer to your customers what you're receiving, right? That's a given rule. You can only offer what you are receiving. And of course, a second sort of corollary of that is you can only promise a a service that the upstream provider has promised to you. So you can only offer what you're receiving and promise what is being delivered by the upstream provider. You can never go further than that. So now you have the question like uh, you just brought up, George, where you have an upstream provider that says, well, I could change things if I feel like it. Okay, so what do you do? Well, as the middleman, the MSP, you need to make it very clear that that can occur. And I, if I were all of you guys out there listening, um, and if you've worked with me, then you know that this is sort of uh, already covered. But for those of you who haven't, uh, in your master agreement, you need to have something in there, something that acknowledges this situation, that acknowledges the fact that you are providing or sometimes reselling. Depends if you're white labeling it, then you're, you know, maybe providing it. If you are just a reseller, then, The upstream provider is providing it. But either way, you have to let them know these services emanate from a different source other than you. And your customer needs to know a few things. One, they need to know that that source may or may not be identified, right? You might elect in your statements of work and your proposals to offer a BDR plan and not identify the upstream vendor. And that's your right. And sometimes there are good reasons to do that especially if you want to change that vendor. You don't wanna be locked into a contract promising a, um, you know, a data solution when now you wanna change. Right, now what? So you don't wanna be locked in. So the first thing is you wanna identify that these services may be provided by a third party, that the third party might not be identified as such. And third, that you are not a guarantor or an insurer of those third-party services. And if those third-party services go down, well, you may be able to facilitate a workaround, right? You may be able to work something out, maybe, but you're not gonna take responsibility, financial or otherwise, for the downtime of a third-party provider. So that needs to be in your MSA.
0: No, I I agree, but here's the wrinkle though, right? Like a lot of MSPs, Bundle everything into one nice, simple, chewable number of, hey, you got 10 employees. Well, this is how much per employee all in. Yeah. They don't understand how that cookie is built, right? They just see right. one number, right? So how so how do you safely go back and say, hey, Mr. Customer, yeah, this pizza looked like this, but like this slice is now changing. And right. this, pizza, like, like how do you how do you not get yourself in a bind?
1: Yeah. So from my perspective. There are two avenues that you have to hit. We just talked about the first one, which is legal. You have to have something in your document that lets you do what you're about to do. Okay. Because before we even get to the question that you're asking, which is how do we explain this? Right. How do we do this when they may have budgeted for a, you know, a, a cookie slice this big and you're suddenly making it bigger or vice versa? Um, we need to make sure that we have the ability to do it. So we begin with the MSA. The MSA has to acknowledge this type of situation and say, this can happen. Now, from there, what you want to do is the flip side, manage expectations. Too often, MSPs do not manage expectations. See, you can call me and say, do I have the right to do this? And the answer might be yes. Of course you do. The agreement says you do. But implementing it is something else. Because if you don't manage expectations, what you're going to end up doing is spending a lot of time explaining, arguing, fighting, even if you're right. And you don't want to be in the position where now you've spent 10, 12, 15, 20 hours arguing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. If we start an arbitration, we'll win, but you've lost this customer. So what are you going to do? You manage expectations in your proposal and in, or, or statement of work or both if you're using sort of a, 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 Uh, quoting software. So that's where you're going to manage expectations. You're going to explain that this particular service is offered by an upstream provider. Maybe it's Microsoft, maybe whatever it is, you, you don't necessarily even have to name the vendor. And you explain that the costs and fees are passed through to the client. Should those costs and fees increase, you'll give them as much notice as you can, but you're going to pass them through. That's the type of thing. This is This is how you manage expectations. So if your client calls you, your customer says, uh, I never expected this, why is my bill 10% higher? Well, you could say, first of all, this is what Microsoft charges us, or whatever the vendor is, we are passing it through. Well, I didn't know you could do that. Well, then we could point to the statement of work. Well, it's right, you know, we said right here, these things are passed through, they may change from time to time. You don't have the right to do that. Yes, we actually do. We have this MSA. See, that's when you're working backwards. You, you need to have your, your steps covered because your customers may challenge you. So I would recommend an MSA strategy and an SOW strategy. And um,
0: does, does any of this change when you enter and put in the word white label?
1: Wow. So not really, um, you know, white label just means that it's harder. It's going to be harder for you to explain to your customer why something went wrong when your customer thinks it was your solution to begin with. Sure. Right. So if I'm reselling a solution and they think it's the Brad Gross solution and it doesn't work, it's going to be hard for me to say, oh, well, this is actually the Bardisi solution that I'm labeling as Brad Gross and so forth. So, again, I think that what you need to do, even in the white label solution, is say that the white label solution, if you don't want to give it away, if you don't want to be fully transparent, then you say it relies on, right? It relies on, it is comprised, at least in part, or in some part of other third-party solutions that may change, that may have different conditions. That we will try to, um, you know, you could say you'll try to be a buffer between changing prices and changing conditions. But to the extent that you simply can't, that it becomes unreasonable to do so, those conditions, those costs, those fees have to be sort of relayed down to the client. You so, see it a lot. You know, we see it. We see it quite often.
0: Hundred percent. So here's another, here's one in the opposite direction. There's been, and this is more current events, Mm -hmm. where the vendor goes around the MSP and now tries to solicit, sell something else, directly with the end customer, right? So they just go right past you and says, yeah, you can, that's great, you're over here, I'm going over here. Right. How, How do you protect yourself from that happening?
1: Very hard. Very hard. I mean, you know, the issue is that um, agreements with vendors are notorious for being one-sided. And again, we'll we'll list Microsoft as, but Microsoft is not the only one. And certainly we're we're just using it as an example, illustrative here, but they are generally one-sided. We can change this agreement at any time by giving you notice. If you don't like it, stop using our service. Well, it's not always that easy to just stop using the service, but that's the agreement you're given. We could change our prices if by giving you notice. Okay? So again, not always that easy. Now, what I have found is that over the years, upstream providers are becoming more MSP-friendly because they need to rely on MSPs. The community is significantly larger. And, uh, you know, a provider that gets the reputation for not being MSP-friendly or circumventing MSPs certainly probably does won't have a, li- a long lifespan in this industry but to the extent that you can get a vendor to ign- to to enter into a non-solicit not a non-compete but a non-solicit agreement where you can't take our our customers you can't contract directly with our customers that would be wonderful on the flip side you could try it is very difficult it's sort of like um like UFOs. I've heard about them in legend, but I've never actually seen it. You could try to tell your customers that they're not going to circumvent your service and go directly to vendors and so forth. Customers, if they read those contracts, are usually more savvy. And they say, listen, you know, if I don't use you, I should have the right to go to whomever I want. Uh, so you could try. You know, the good news is, is that it is the exception Um as to whether a vendor will circumvent an MSP and go to a customer. It usually arises only when the MSP has failed, uh, become unresponsive, uh, has disappeared, and now the the, the customers need support and vendors go directly. But that's a rare occurrence, thank God.
0: So along the same lines of the vendor to partner or reseller arrangement, what happens if your vendor comes back to you and says, I'm shutting this service off because I feel that some sort of violation of XYZ policy has occurred. Yeah. Notice what do you what can you do?
1: Right. There's not. I mean, again, it really all comes down to the contract that you've signed, and so it's very important to keep in touch with the vendors, right? The upstream providers. It's very, very important. Uh, you know, we I, I represent um, a company that does artificial intelligence, and uh, their solution is used by companies worldwide and those companies themselves sub license it down to their own entities and you know the contract that i have that i wrote for them uh, says listen company if somebody's doing something wrong we reserve the right to just shut your access off that's it you know and you and all your entities and all your users they're all of a sudden going to go down so make sure that they don't do anything wrong and listen to us and the way that you can um Uh, avoid these kinds of situations. And the way that we do so in this example that I just gave you is you have to assign authorized contacts. You have to have somebody in your company that the vendor knows or has contact information for and vice versa. So that if something is going wrong, the vendor doesn't overreact and shut your service. Okay. And by doing that, um, you're going to see that these kinds of stories about They shut me down, so all my clients went down. They become fewer and farther between. Authorized contacts are the key. Just make sure that in in giving authorized contacts, you don't have so many that you've spread responsibility so thin that no one has responsibility for anything, okay? So have maybe two, three authorized contacts at most. Those are the people who can delegate, who can approve. Make sure your vendors are aware of them. And you won't have issues.
0: Okay. So what about, I mean, listen, uh, some of these contracts and these terms, like I got a new iPhone recently and it's uh, 300 pages, um, you know, and that's on a good day, right? It just keeps on expanding. Uh, yeah. Who owns the data, Brad? Like once you put something on somebody else's system, who who, who actually owns that information?
1: Well, you own the information, but they're going to own your access, right? Right. That's the key. You're going to own the information, but as far as access is concerned, they're going to own it. So you always want to make sure that um, you know you know where your data is going because it's yours. But remember, they're going to own the access. So just ensure that in the contracts that you enter into with your upstream providers that all of this is made very clear. Authorized contacts, where your data is, what under what conditions access can be denied, turned off, suspended, throttled, and so forth. By doing that, you're largely going to eliminate these upstream provider issues. Um, I think that, uh, you know, again, making it very clear to your end customer, to your your customers, the MSP's customers, upstream providers can mess things up they can really mess things up and you need to make it very clear that you're not responsible should that occur so you have to cover yourself on both ends on the left end on the left side with your upstream providers on the right right side with your customers
0: okay so in the circumstance where your customer comes to you and says i you know i need to know which vendors you're on because i'm worried about what maybe a line of business that I'm in and maybe customers that they're servicing downstream. Like how far do you expose all your upstream vendors terms of service to your end customer?
1: So, you know, it's always a question about whether you should make it look like you as the MSP have all the solutions and you're the, you know, the puppet master or whether you should just make it very clear that you are providing third-party solutions and, and name them. You know, I'm giving you a, a, Amazon web service uh, environment or an Azure environment. Here's, you know, we're going to give you this security awareness from this and, and so forth. And this is our stack. Um, I think that today, uh, you know, my, my, my answer might've been different a few years ago today. I don't have a problem with an MSP revealing who its partners are, who its affiliates, you know, who it's affiliated with. Um, as long as you make it very clear in your MSA, in your master agreement, that you can change these partners at, at any time, even if they are identified in a statement of work and that you make it very clear again, that <clears throat> should there be an issue with one of these services that they talk to you, that they shouldn't try to contact the the um, uh, the OEM or the, uh, the, the, uh, the upstream provider directly. You know, I'll tell you, I, a, a good example of this uh, is now exi- exists right now in the in the Azure uh, arena, Microsoft Azure. So, what a lot of MSPs are now realizing is that under the newer model uh, that Microsoft follows, and it's been about what about two years now or so, two two years, um, customers can have direct access to the configuration of the Azure environment. Now think about that: customers, MSP customers, can have a direct link. And, and, and to the configuration of their Azure environment that is being managed and brought to them by the MSP. Well, what does that mean? Think about that for a moment. If the MSP is bringing that environment to the customer, the MSP is on the hook as far as bill is concerned. The bills go to the MSP, the MSP passes it through to the customer, but the customer can configure things at the level of Microsoft. So what you end up seeing, and we've actually seen this, is where customers will configure the Azure environment, increase their costs unknowingly. And then what happens is at the end of the month or the following month, the MSP gets the bill. It's significantly larger, passes it through to the customer. Customer says, why is the bill higher, right? These kinds of you know circumventing the MSP can have disastrous consequences. So as far as that one situation is concerned. I know now that um, uh, that Microsoft has uh, budget and cost alerts in Azure. So if you're an MSP and you're subject to that, just quick bit of advice, make sure you set up budget and cost alerts. But generally speaking, I would say in your contract and in your statements of work, make it very clear to your customers, don't circumvent us. Don't try to be your own IT department. Right. This is why we're here. We are the professionals. So don't circumvent us. Listen to us. And if something has to be changed, come to us. We'll change it for you.
0: What about uh, going into the security realm for a second? Okay. What happens when your upstream vendor has a breach, a hack, their software becomes problematic? Sure. They notify you. Now what, right? Because you, you have to now notify your customers. How, how do you handle that contractually?
1: So as far as security, you know, now the big deal, obviously, is cybersecurity. It's, it's everywhere. Um, and it's, it's the hottest topic out there. So the question about what to do and when to do it, um, it now goes into a little bit about data breach laws. If you have an upstream provider and the upstream provider suffers a breach, and then depending on the type of breach it is, it might be the provider's duty to give notice to the affected persons. It might be your duty as the MSP to give notice to the affected persons. It might be both of your duties. It might be, depending on why the breach occurred, how it occurred, and so forth. Now, I teach a, um, a course right now in, in St. Thomas Law School on um, uh, cybersecurity corporate practices. And one of the things that we talk about in that course is responsibility, response time, costs involved in the, in the, in the response and so forth. Uh, along those lines, I would give you a couple of bits of advice. One, if you learn that your provider has had a breach, you need to bring in counsel, you as the MSP, because there may be a time when you have to send out the notice or you might be responsible for some of the costs involved, depending on how it happened. You need to bring in counsel. Do not assume that, oh, we'll just tell our customers that um, you know this upstream provider had a breach. It'll be fine, they'll resolve it. It doesn't work that way. So you have to bring in counsel, that's one. Two, you have to know the data breach laws in your state. And again, counsel would be the best person to, to, to opine on that. But don't assume that just because you're the MSP and an upstream provider had a breach, that you're at, you're in the clear. You have no responsibility, it's their responsibility. That's not necessarily true. Also, and I think we have talked about this on prior MSP initiatives, every MSP needs to have a security incident uh, response plan. Every MSP needs to have one. A security incident response plan is a plan that you're gonna put in place should there be unauthorized contact, should there be a breach, should something go wrong. That is not the time when you're gonna first sit down and say, all right, who are we gonna call and who are we gonna involve in this, in this situation? That's not when it should the decisions are made. Have an incident response plan in place. And we can talk about if you'd like what should go into those, but have it in place because upstream providers fail. They, they have breaches of security. They have uh, um, uh, uh, breaches of contract and services. Well, it happens. Just be prepared both in your MSA and your SOW have a security incident response plan on your own end and you should be okay.
0: What happens if a customer doesn't pay their bill and mm-hmm. you then delete their data, but then they come back asking for it? What ah, happened?
1: Well, yeah, that's uh, that's a interesting one. We've had that pop up several times. We've had a lot of uh, people contact us with that situation. They, and you know where it really, happens where the relationship ends badly so when the relationship ends badly a contract is over maybe the client the customer didn't pay the last two or three months so you say that's it we're shutting you off and as soon as the day you know the day comes they get shut off the msp deletes the data or tells its third party provider release the data delete it it's done and then two weeks later they come back and say where's our data so especially if you have a bad relationship with the customer you're starting off already in a, in a bad place. A couple of things, a couple of ways to address this. First, again, foundationally speaking, you always need to make sure that you have the contractual right to do whatever you're going to do, right? Just like we talked about earlier with upstream providers, how you secure it in the MSA, then the SOW, get your you know, self in, on the right path. For this issue, again, MSA, it should say in your MSA that you have no duty. In fact, you will not. You will not keep their, their data for longer than a period of time after the, the, the agreement is terminated. It's a creature of contract. If they agree, they agree. Now, sometimes there are statutes and situations where that doesn't apply, like under HIPAA. It may require you to hang on to that information until you can destroy it uh, with with the um, under directions of the covered entity and so on. But we're not gonna get into that right now. Generally speaking, it's a creature of contract. Tell them that you have no duty to keep that data. And then of course, have a document destruction policy in your company. Your company should actually have, You know, sometimes you hear them called um, document retention policies. Okay. Document retention policies. That's a really nice way of saying a document destruction policy because a retention policy says we're going to destroy things. So call it what it is. A document destruction policy is important to have for a few reasons. One, no one can accuse you of acting subjectively. Oh, you destroyed my records because we got into an argument over billing. You don't destroy anyone else's records. You put us in a bad place. We're suing you right? You don't fall into that situation. The other thing that it helps with is it gets rid of data that's in your possession that you have no need to keep. Why do you, if I was your customer, why do you want to keep my data? Why? It's just one more thing that you have to keep track of. If I somehow get into a problem on my end, now people are going to start subpoenaing you to give me the data that's in your possession. And you're going to turn around and say, wait a minute, Brad hasn't been a customer in three years. It's going to cost a lot of money to go through the archives. Why should we have to do it? Answer, because you were dumb enough to hang on to that data. That's why. Because you weren't smart enough to destroy it. So document destruction policies not only avoid situations where people can accuse you of being subjective, acting unfairly, and so forth, uh, inconsistently, but they also eliminate the possibility that you get pulled into situations that are not of your own doing that have nothing to do with you. And so on. This, that actually,
0: you- brings up, this actually brings up a case yeah. to use names, but we're right in the thick of it. So let's bring it out here. Okay. How responsible are you for the privacy of your customer's data? If somebody comes knocking on yeah. your door, yeah. like a government agency and they say, I want this. Don't you like, how far do you have to go to say, well, hold on. That's not my data to give."
1: Yeah. Well, a couple of, there are a couple of ways to approach that, right? We're going to begin with the fact that if you are subpoenaed, right? If you are subpoenaed, if the government or, or a court issues a subpoena saying, turn over the information, assuming it's a valid subpoena, assuming it's a valid court and subpoena, they have jurisdiction, all that, you know, legal mumbo jumbo, assuming your lawyer says it's a valid subpoena. The answer is you got to turn it over. That's the way it goes. Okay, uh, and you're not going to be able to by contract say, well, I have a contract that says I have to keep it confidential. That's between you and your, you know, and your customer. Turn over the information when you're subpoenaed to do so. All right. As far as that's concerned, <clears throat> that's one end. There is no current federal cyber privacy and cybersecurity law. Federal. Okay, it doesn't exist. There is no single overwhelming law or statute that someone could point to and say, under all circumstances, this has to be private, or this has to be secure, and so on. There are individual laws that impact specific situations. HIPAA impacts personal health information, Gramm-Leach-Bliley will do financial institutions, Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, to the extent it has and amb- a little bit ambi- ambiguity in that as far as privacy is concerned, but that relates to public companies and how they are handling their information. All right.
0: We're, we're talking about- Yeah. Like, for the guys who are pe- keeping track outside of the country, we're talking about something like what Europe has with GDPR, right? Okay, a, right. A, we don't have overarching that. Overarching privacy policy.
1: Right, we don't have that. US doesn't have that. And candidly, there's nothing on the radar right now that I would say, oh, within the next six months, it'll be there. No, right now, it is a, it is, it, the environment are is independent fiefdoms. You have health here, you have financial institutions here, you have public companies here, and each one is controlled by um, a statute. And that statute might be enforced by different government entities. But there is nobody who can say, you um, I'm not dealing with personal health information. I'm not dealing with a, a, a bank or a financial institution. I'm just an MSP backing up a trucking company's uh, you know, system monitoring, maintaining it, giving them uh, you know, that kind of service. What about them? What about them? What privacy laws exist? Answer, none, really. What you're going to be expected to do, however, is you're going to be expected to act reasonably reasonably you always have to act reasonably when it comes to privacy and security because built into every contract whether you say it or not whether there is a law about it or not it is built into every business relationship is a standard of reasonableness so if you can be, if you are found, yeah, reasonableness. So if, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't always act reasonably. I'm doing my Chris Farley, right? I don't always enter into contracts like I should. Um, so the, the, the idea of reasonableness is an important one because it means that you're expected to act as any other solution provider in your position would act. So while you're not required to keep information for a certain amount of time, or you're not necessarily required to have, you know, Amazon level security procedures built into your into your company, you're expected to have reasonable security, you're expected to act reasonably when it comes to privacy and privacy of individuals and so forth. And if you don't, well, then you end up with a lot of arguing a lot of attorneys letters and so forth. And, and then try to argue the, the definition of reasonableness. Good luck, good luck, you know? So the answer is no, there's no over overarching privacy law right now for most MSPs, but act reasonably, act reasonably. Always err on the side of caution, obviously, uh, because it's just not worth the time and expense if you don't.
0: All right, so for everybody who's actually live on this session, there's a Q&A, there's a chat. If you have specific questions, don't hesitate. We're kind of in the back end of this. And if you have burning questions that come to the top of your head, I want to get those answered. Well, I keep on rapid firing, Brad, because I talk to people all day long and these things come up all day long. That's
1: what you do. Uh,
0: yeah, for sure. Uh-huh. Brad, how enforceable, um, you know, like we talked about in the past situations where the MSP signs up a customer for a three-year deal. I'm just using right. that. And the customer wants out. And we always said, Hey, if the customer wants out, they're going to get out. How, right. and, how easy is it for you to get out? Like if your customer ends early, right? You had a three year right. deal. You're in They're like, I'm not paying you anymore. Forget it. But right. you signed a contract upstream to match their contractors, yeah. at, you know, the right pricing or have you. Are you, you know, are you stuck?
1: That's the problem. Right. And that's goes back to what we originally started to talk about, which is you can't offer more than you're getting, right? And you can't promise more than you're getting. So if you have signed on the upstream with the upstream provider a three-year deal, let's say, you can't really offer your customer the ability to terminate without cause by giving me 30 days notice. They don't match up. You're locked into three years, your customer's locked into 30 days, essentially. It's really a month to month that you have, because if they could terminate with 30 days notice, it's a month to month contract. So you always have to make sure that these that the sides equate, right? That it's equal on, on each side of the um, equal sign in the middle of it. Um, I think that, you know, as far as termination without cause, if you're locked into these long-term relationships, make sure your clients cannot terminate without cause. On the flip side, on the flip side, I can tell you that, you um, Long-term contracts, there are two schools of thought as to whether MSP should be using them or not, right? The first school of thought, and this is sort of what you touched on, um, uh, George, which is, uh, you know, if I have a long-term contract, they're locked in, and that way I can value my company, I know what my company is worth. The flip side, like you just said, if customer wants to get out of that contract, they can probably make your life so miserable that they're going to get out and you're gonna wish that they got out. So as far as should you even be using these three-year contracts, I would say, always have a term in your statement of work that describes the services, always have a term that you've covered yourself. So if you have a uh, one-year deal with your upstream provider, make sure you have at least a one-year deal with your client. And then if it's month to month, then it's month to month with your client. But don't make guarantees and promises that they can get out with 30 days if you can't do it on, on the other end. Um, that's what I would say. It, it, you know, in this zeal for MSPs to do business, they're making promises and guarantees. You really gotta be careful about that stuff. You might be left holding the, uh, the bag.
0: Which brings us to a reality now, which is, hey, a lot of people are probably in not so great financial shape based on last year. What happens if your customer becomes insolvent? What if they go bankrupt? What if their bank account just shuts down? And and now what do you do?
1: Not much. There's not a lot you can do under those circumstances. I get those calls quite often. Um, unless you you know the general rule. I don't care what state you're listening to this in. Uh, the general rule is that officers, directors, and so forth are not responsible for the debts of the of the company with with which they're associated. So, you know, if you have a deal with a company and they go bankrupt, they go bankrupt. And unless you have some sort of personal guarantee, which officers and directors are loath to sign for exactly the reason you just brought up, which is if this company goes down, I don't want my personal assets, you know, at risk. Um, unless they signed a personal guarantee, you're largely out of luck company goes bankrupt, they go bankrupt, which is why I always, you know, I, I, I talk to my clients and sometimes I'll say, so how are things going? I say, great, this and that, you know, I got a bunch of customers that are like four or five months behind. Four or five months behind in payment? Four or five months? I mean, this isn't like 30 days or 60 days. They are, you know, 300 days behind. And and the statistics show that if you don't collect these, these amounts um, within the first 60 days, your ability to collect later on drops precipitously. So a word of caution, just as a business kind of a uh, 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 thought to your to your attendees today, don't let these receivables go too long because if they go bankrupt, you're out of luck, you're holding the bag and the ability to collect is is much tougher after about 60 days, much tougher.
0: What, what do you tell people in the situation where Um, they do need to take a legal action, right? Their customer, you know, you do need to file a lawsuit because somebody does owe you money, right? But the system's just backed up, right? Like Uh the the court system's so far behind because their people aren't even in there to stamp the paperwork, to say that it's there. You know what I mean? Like the system itself has slowed down, Uh which then prevents you from being able to even get something as simple as a default judgment or something like that.
1: Agreed which is why I think there are a couple of things that you need to do right now. One, I think that arbitration is, is a very, very uh, strong um, option for a lot of companies. And that should be in your agreement because if you don't put it in your agreement, then you're not entitled to arbitrate. Both parties have to agree. So if it's in your agreement, then you can arbitrate. The arbitration goes a lot faster than the court system that's bogged down. The court system is not used to doing things online and by Zoom and video. They've been, we've been doing video arbitrations for a decade or more. So this is not new to that form. The other thing that you're going to want to make sure is that your agreement says that whoever wins in this arbitration gets its attorney's fees. That's important. That is That single provision, I would say, has settled, God, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but I would say it's close to half. Close to half the cases that I have been involved in from a litigation perspective, have where it revolves around a contract, end up settling on that provision. If I win, I get my attorney's fees. If I lose, I have to pay yours. Now, why is that important? Because there is what we call the American rule in the United States, which says that if you have to sue for breach of contract and you win, you get damages, right? You get what you're entitled to, maybe some interest and so forth. You don't get attorney's fees. That's the rule. You do not get attorney's fees. Everyone pays their own fees. So to pursue $20,000, you might spend 50. So congratulations. You got your money, but you've lost the war. But if you have a provision in there that says the prevailing party gets its fees, the whole world changes. The whole world changes, right? If, if somebody owes you $5,000, Send them a letter. Uh, you know, you owe us $5,000. Here's what we're going to do. On Monday, we're going to contact our attorney. He charges $500 an hour. The provision here says, you know, if we win, um, you're going to have to pay our attorney's fees. So $5,000 is going to be outstripped by attorney's fees, we estimate, within about six days. So either pay this amount or we're going to move forward and you're going to end up owing a whole lot more, exponentially more. That gets people to move. The threat of attorney's fees gets people to move. So that should be in your MSA as well.
0: What happens, like we talked last year about Mm -hmm. pandemic clauses and Mm -hmm. after God clauses and force majeure. And we we threw out all sorts of scenarios back under full force. What happens if you're, you're still midterm, you're not in a position where there was a scenario that logically showed up where you could reintroduce new terms to your customer, but right. you really need to introduce new terms to your customer. What's the best right. way to change your constitution, your MSN?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's an issue, right? Um, <clears throat> you realize halfway through a contract that your contract stinks. And now you sit back and say, what am I going to do about that? All right. So, <clears throat> I have had a lot of clients ask me if they couldn't somehow engage in the same process that credit card companies do. Because, you know, credit card companies, what do they do when they change their agreement or their terms? They send you a notice and they say, we're changing it as of um, uh, February 15th. Today's the 19th. February 15th, uh, you know, a little over a, a little under a month from now, we're changing our terms. Either accept them or not. But that's the way it goes. And as a credit card company, you can do that because the agreement that you signed up when you signed with your credit card company, you signed an agreement that said, company, you can change your terms anytime you want. And that's how it is. Doesn't work for the MSP industry. And here's why. If you think it through, a credit card company says we can change our terms at any time, but you have a remedy. If you don't like it, stop using our card pay what you owe us, right? And stop using our car you're out of the con- a card you're out of the contract. Great. That's how they are allowed to unilaterally change an agreement. Their agreement says they can, you've agreed to that, but they've given you a remedy. You don't have to agree to their amendment, but then you're out of the contract. Doesn't work for MSPs. If you have a 3-year deal with your customer and you want to change your plan in after 5 months, you don't want to give the client the option to terminate Just stop using our service, pay what you owe us. No, you want them in there for three three years, three years. But you're in the middle of a deal that stinks. Your contract stinks. So what do you do? While there is no greatest way to approach this, any contract can be changed with the mutual consent of the parties. So what do you do? You ask for mutual consent. You can send a note, dear George, our general counsel was doing some housekeeping, a housekeeping audit recently, and we discovered that we are not operating under the latest version of our agreement with you. And due to um, regulatory and insurance requirements, our counsel requires us to have uniformity in all of our agreements. What does that mean? I don't know. It means that's what your attorney told you. Okay. Right, As your attorney, George, I'm telling you, I would like uniformity uh, in all of your agreements. Good, there you go. Now, moving on. Because of our attorney's requirements, uh, we are sending you the attached agreement or amendment or whatever it is, right? You'll notice it does not change our services, our rates, our um, costs, fees, and so forth, but it does better explain the relationship that we have with you and what you should expect from us. Please review it, sign it. If it's uh, satisfactory to you, please sign it. This will be our agreement moving forward. Thank you so much for your understanding. If you have any questions, please call me, right? I got to tell you, most customers of MSPs will sign that document. Most will sign it. They'll look and they'll say, oh, well, the attorney, it's regulatory and insurance. Oh, we hate insurance, right? So you you throw those buzzwords in, customers will sign it. Now, what if they don't? Then you have your old agreement then you wait for a renewal term, right? Or a new um, service that you're providing, at which point you can then reintroduce the new agreement. But yeah, unilateral changes to a agreement works in the credit card industry, doesn't work for the MSPs, doesn't work.
0: Mm. Okay, fair mm. enough. What, what do you do when your customer comes back to you and says, um, yeah, things are going all right, but, you know, we're trying to cut costs at every possible you know corner because we don't know how things are going to go. Right. And um, I want you to give us access. I need these passwords. I need access to all these systems. We're going to start trying to do some of this on our own so that you can stop billing us for some of this stuff. I mean, wow. there, there, that, that happens, right?
1: I'm sure you've yeah. heard of this. Yeah, you are hitting like the uh, the greatest hits of MSP nightmares. Really, that's what you're doing. Your um, if there was a greatest hits album, I think that you've you've hit like nine out of the ten uh, that would be on there. So the issue of passwords and administrative configurations and so on is a vexing one. It is a complicated one, and it's largely um, uh, uh, pushed or uh, the fear and the the the. Uh, uncertainty of it is largely pushed because a couple of years ago, God, I don't even know how many years ago now, it might've been seven, eight years ago or so. There was an owner of an MSP that was arrested because that MSP, I think it was in Atlanta, in Georgia somewhere. I'm sure people are now Googling at Georgia MSP owner and something. And what happened in that case was the MSP got into an argument with its customer. Now the customer in that case happened to be Uh, I think it was the chamber of commerce, right? It was a chamber of commerce for the County. Okay. So when you're in, you know, uncharted areas, right. Probably your first fight out of the box doesn't want to be against the County. I mean, it's probably not the best way to, you know, to go, but all right. So he didn't uh, turn over the passwords, gets knocked on the door. Sheriff comes and arrests him uh, for uh, under a criminal statute for, basically extorting, I guess, the, the chamber of commerce, you know, saying, I'm not turning over your, your stuff until you pay me. And okay. Eventually it was settled and so on, but that, that story has like legendary lore to it now. And everyone says, I think you could get arrested. I think, all right, here's the deal. You're not going to get arrested. And I was a prosecutor, both in New York and Miami. I could tell you whoever arrested that guy, that person shouldn't even be in, in the legal profession anymore. made no sense to arrest the person. It wasn't a criminal thing. You're not going to get arrested, but, but it's a creature of contract. If someone doesn't pay you, right, then you don't have to provide a service. This is basic contract law. If you don't pay me, I'm divested of my you know requirement to give you whatever you want. All right. So then why not make the surrender of passwords, and configurations and so forth, part of the contract. Think about that. Make it part of the contract. If you have worked with me, then it is part of your contract. Take a look at your, 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 your MSA it should have something in there that addresses exactly this issue. You know, the think about this. If I said to you, I want all my passwords, admin configs and so forth. There are a lot of reasons why you might not want to turn that over immediately. One, you have to pay someone to do that, right? You're paying an associate or uh, an employee of yours to go and look this stuff up. Someone has to cover those costs Two. Those passwords might be generic ones that you use for all your customers. Now you have to go and change that or change others. The point is there are real services that are involved in this. Hear what I'm saying, services. I don't know any MSP that is providing free services. And if this is a service, then this should be one that in your MSA is explicitly defined as a service. Retrieval of passwords, logins, administrative configurations, whatever it might be is a service that we provide. If you are not paid up with your fees, if you are in default, right? you know you could lay out all the parade of conditions that could occur. But the bottom line is if we haven't been paid or if we don't be- or you're not paying your bill, we're not going to provide the service to you. Now what? Now they agree. So now they said, well, we need our passwords. We can't move without it, right? Pay your bill. Well, you have our passwords, right? Pay your bill, right? Um, Well, we're gonna sue you. What are you gonna tell the judge? You're gonna tell the judge that we entered into a contract where we explicitly agreed to pay for this service. We're not paying for that service, but we want you judge to give us our passwords anyway, because we should, really? I mean, so the idea is, and these are, these, these are the realities. These are the situational realities that I talk about with you and all my clients when I say, this is why you need somebody reviewing and drafting your agreements that knows this industry that deals with this every day, right? I have dealt with realities all the time where MSP say I'm not being paid. They want the password. Now what? Well, if you're using a contract I wrote, yeah, it says right there. They don't get it unless they pay. Thank you. That's it. So, these are the realities that every MSP needs to think about. You know, and coming sort of full stream, because I know we're almost close to the end of the hour, you know, dealing with upstream providers. What are the issues? An upstream provider might fail, it might change its terms, right? It might directly deal with the customer, like the Azure example I gave earlier. I mean, all of these realities, you need to address them, right? Uh, Security what could happen? Something could happen, there might be a breach. What are your responsibilities? How have you parlayed that into an agreement? How have you expressed that in an agreement? If the answer is I haven't, well, then you have a problem. And now coming full circle to to this issue about passwords and so forth, it needs to be in the agreement. It's a situational reality that needs to be there. You don't wanna have to deal with this reality when it happens. Because at that point, now you're going to be spending money on your attorney. You have a disgruntled customer. So he's going to have an attorney that's threatening. That's not the time to do it. So get it done right at at the outset.
0: 100%. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in this session. Every session, we touch on areas that we didn't touch before. But this is good. This is why we do them.
1: We're always learning Um, something.
0: 100%. So for everybody that's on here, and for everybody that's going to watch this later, if you think that Brad could help you, if you think that you might need a refresher, you need your agreements reviewed, you might be in a pickle where you need some advice, you know, so that you, you know, double check yourself before you go and start sending stuff to people, then that's exactly what Brad does, you know, and I want everyone to know how to get a hold of Brad. Where, where can they
1: find you? Uh, they can find me at the website, right? Bradleygross.com, or they can drop an email at Info is probably the best way to do it. Info at bradleygross.com. Tune into our uh, podcast. We have our own Bradcasts, as I call them, as you know. In fact, you've been a guest on them uh, at technologybradcast.com. We just did one, in fact, about uh, just yesterday. We just released it yesterday about what happens when you're dealing with someone in a company, right? In your customer's company, and they sign a deal and everything's going great, and that guy disappears. Gone, and then the customer turns around and says, We want out of the contract. And you say, Wait a minute, what do you mean you want out of the contract? We have a three year deal. Joe signed it. Well, Joe's not here anymore, and Joe didn't have authority to sign that deal. Now, what? That's a good one.
0: That's what
1: what this week's podcast is about. Go
0: back and listen to that one. That's a good good scenario.
1: TechnologyBradcast.com. Put that
0: on the 11th of the 10 doomsday scenarios. That's
1: the 11th when Joe disappears.
0: Awesome. Well, everyone, I appreciate you for watching. Stay tuned. MSP Initiative Live, Tuesdays and Thursdays, one o'clock Eastern. We will, you know, try and beg and plead for Brad to come back, um, you know, in the near future, because there's always questions you know, on the legal front. And uh, this is the person that we know has those answers. So why why go anywhere else? Appreciate Thanks, you for, George. for joining Brad and touch base with you soon.
1: You too. Take care.